All right, since you got to show up to do a reading, I guess I'll do it. <clears throat> he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is, Jesus, is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. And I hope that was the right. Yeah. Good job, Quinn. Let's give Quinn a hand. <laughs> Appreciate it, Quinn. Thank you very much. Yeah, you, you definitely. What's that? Sorry. I don't know what. Sorry. Sorry, Elijah. Let's give, yeah, put my glasses on. Let's give Elijah a hand, too. <laughs> Well, uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for coming this morning. And uh, today we finish our series on God's household. It's a big, big house. I, I love the first song. It's also starting to be football season, right? We got, we got football in there as well. Um, I almost started doing the, uh, the sign language to it or whatever, uh, whatever you do. But uh, thank you all for that. Yeah, we live in a big, big house. And you'll recall two weeks ago we talked about the porch and uh, how we as we're, we're no longer strangers, we're no longer far off. We have been brought into God's house, this great big porch. And that's where we have, uh, we welcome in a large group. We welcome in people. We turn strangers into friends. And how critical that is, without welcoming others in, uh, without the porch, the house is incomplete. The church is incomplete. And last week we talked a little bit about the living room. The living room is where we gather into a little bit smaller segments. Uh, Wednesday night coming up would be a great living room experience. If you see something in uh, your worship guide that you might be interested in, that would be a great way to grow. Living room experiences can happen in our Sunday schools, our UMW circles, our monthly men's group. There's a lot, there are a lot of living room experiences. And learning is important. Learning is important without, without the living room. Um, we, we're, we're really not growing. We're not learning. And we're called to love God with all of our mind and our heart. And that helps us to do that. But today, we're talking about the kitchen. The kitchen. It's funny when Dixie uh, uh, was talking about what she thinks about, like maybe her favorite kitchen growing up, you know, uh, stirring that spoon, stirring in the thing. I think of one word when I think of my favorite kitchens in my life, Bacon. You know, it's like when the whole house starts getting full of bacon, I know that all is right in the world for sure. So, uh, so let's pause for a moment and think about this for a little bit. Um, what does it mean to be in God's kitchen? Now, let's pray. Holy God, you are the architect and the cornerstone of the house, of this incredible household. Um, Lord, help us to draw closer to you and to, and to use all the rooms in your house uh, that we might be transformed and remade into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
couple weeks ago, uh, I, we, as we always do on the first Sunday of, of the month, we have what? We have communion. And I had something a couple of weeks ago that happened to me for the first time in my entire life uh, at the 11 o'clock service. We are preparing there at the 11 o'clock service in the sanctuary. And uh, for those of you who've been to the 11 o'clock, you know that we sing parts of the great Thanksgiving. And so after my sermon, I walk down in the pulpit and begin to say the words that we say. The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord and so on and so forth. And just as I looked at the altar table, getting ready to go, begin to do the institution and breaking the bread... Guess what? No bread. Now, this is the crazy thing because the train had already left the station and we were getting ready to eat bread and I had no bread. I was like, it is good and right and a holy and precious thing always. And I'm, I'm getting nervous. I don't know what we're going to do. And so when we got to that part where we sing, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, you know, that... So I'm like hiding my microphone. Now, it just so happened it was a perfect storm that day. Julie was hard at work here on a project, so she wasn't in the sanctuary. Susan was um, on assignment preaching at another church in the district. So I looked at Katie Geed, our summer replacement, our summer help, uh, well, not help, our summer intern. That's the right word. Sorry, y'all. That's terrible. <laughs> so I look at Katie and say, Katie, we got no bread. Find it as fast as you can. It is good and a right and joyful thing everywhere. And so Katie darts out. It's an emergency. She darts out of the sanctuary. So I'm going, okay, Lord, bring Katie back before we get done, right? So uh, we come to that moment of truth, though. We get to the very end, no bread. And so I had to just look at, look at him and say, friends, I'm so sorry to tell you that we're waiting on the bread right now, and it should be here any minute. All of a sudden, Katie Gee pops open the door and says, fresh bread right out of the oven, ready to go. <laughs> and so, and so we, we, we got the bread. We got the bread. But you know, it, it made me think about how easy it is not to see things that you take for granted. How, how could I not have noticed that there was no bread on the table for a communion? You know, you see things often enough and over and over again, and you quit seeing them. Well, uh, I think sometimes we can do that with our kitchen experiences in the church. We can forget that we were called by Jesus Christ um, for, for a mission, for a mission that is much too difficult to accomplish or pursue without the gift of the kitchen. That is the very small group of people who love us the very small people who know you. I've got a lot of friends. I've got what I might call two-minute friends. People are very pleasant, but I really don't have enough time to get to, get to know everybody. I have two-hour friends, and I have two-day friends. Do, do you have those kind of friends? I know, I know I do. I know I do. We need companions, kitchen companions, People that we can share bread in the kitchen with if we are to continue to grow and be disciples of Jesus Christ. On this uh, first slide, you'll see that the very definition of companion is it's a Latin term. It's a Latin derivative. Com, C-O-M, is with or together. 
panion or panisse is bread. The old French word is campagnon, one who breaks bread with another. Do you have a kitchen? Do you know who your companions are? With whom are you breaking bread? Because we can, we can play church and we can go through the motions and we can do the liturgy, but without the bread, without the bread and without the kitchen, we will spin our wheels and we will simply be playing church instead of being the church. Early on in Genesis, if you go to uh, early on in Genesis 2, 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good. It's the only thing in creation before what we might call the fall. It's the only thing in creation that is not good. That man should be lonely. Now, I've read that scripture at many weddings, but I think it pertains to much more than just a, a wedding, as important as that is. It is not good that we should be alone. And then you start looking in the Bible and you'll start seeing that there are all kinds of small kitchen groups that God used to do the impossible. Abraham had Lot. David had a great friend, Jonathan, who was a kitchen friend. He shared bread with Jonathan. There were the midwives in Egypt, and I so wish sometimes that the Bible gave more women names. But can you imagine being in Egypt? You remember what the Pharaoh said? Pharaoh said, we want you to, uh, 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 when you give birth to the Hebrews, we want you to throw them in the water. Now, these midwives were conspiring against Pharaoh, and they were tapped on the shoulder by God to do this mission. There is no way, and, and, and they, were, they, were, uh, they were building a conspiracy of goodness. How could they have done that if they didn't have each other. Moses had Aaron. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus had Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Close, close friends with him. He, even Jesus needed that kitchen group. Sometimes Jesus would do some things with just Peter and John and James as he did when he went up in the mountain. But even Jesus needed that small group. Paul had Priscilla and Aquila. All these people are kitchen companions. They're, they're holy friends. Greg Jones has a great quote. says this, Holy friends challenge the sins we've come to love, affirm the gifts we're afraid to claim, and help us dream the dreams we otherwise would not dream. Part of this is almost instinctive to uh, people of all cultures. I mean, every culture in our world, there's a system in which you find your very closest friends. People who can challenge you and tell you the things sometimes that you don't want to hear. Because my goodness, alone, we can, we can fool ourselves, can't we? Even my greatest strengths can become my biggest shadows if I don't have the kinds of people who will tell me the truth about myself. Some of you may be thinking about your kitchen friends. I think it's a natural instinct. Some of you may be thinking about the people who were in your wedding. Maybe you're thinking about childhood friends that you continue to, to talk with and, and, and to connect with. Maybe it's uh, professional colleagues that have turned into, um, into journey partners along the way and companions. 
I think we all instinctively need a few people to encourage us and to challenge us and to help us out. Sometimes we need people to affirm the gifts we are afraid to affirm. You know, a, uh, uh, someone who is an acquaintance might flatter us with things that we kind of already know we do well, but every now and then somebody will come along if they know you well enough to really dig in and to help you discover something you didn't even know about yourself. And then, um, and then of course, to dream the dreams that we would otherwise not dream. I love my comfort zone, do y'all? I love it. I love it. But there in the kitchen around the counter sharing the bread of God, sometimes people stretch us to go beyond what we could ever think of. You know, you just can't do it alone. We need to be in God's household. It's just too much to try to do it alone. I just left Oxford. I left my son alone in Oxford, Mississippi. I'm nervous. No, I'm just I'm not nervous. But here's the deal. It's really the first time I've had to get in the car and drive a long distance away from my son. And uh, he is excited about being at school. He is excited about But he's in that like trapeze bar. You remember in college when you didn't know who your friends were going to be and how scary that was? And for the first time in a long time, I kind of saw there was some fear a little bit in his face. Because... His kitchen friends have scattered from Colin, right? And so he's going to have to figure this out for himself. And I pray and I hope that uh, Jen and I, along with the church that he's grown up in, has, has helped him figure out that he's got to find a close-knit group of friends who will, who will help him to continue to grow. Kitchen friends. I hope he doesn't get lost in isolation. I don't think he will, but I mean, that's been the important work of the church. One time Paul said this, and, and it's in Romans 7. Paul, uh, Paul, says, uh, Paul says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at work with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I am a slave to the law of sin. How many times does Paul use the word I in that sentence? I counted them. Six. Anytime I start talking about my life and I've got six personal pronouns, I, I'm in trouble. Paul goes on into the next chapter that talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what generates the community, the family. The Holy Spirit is what creates that kitchen experience for you and for me to help us find companions, people with whom to share bread. It's so, so critical so important. Sometimes um, that kitchen friend just helps me to challenge my blind spots and helps us to reveal our hidden uh, potential. Because a lot of times my isolation, sin, and brokenness, kind of like Paul is saying in Romans 7, it, it shrinks me, it constricts me. 
And it keeps me from dreaming. But that is not the way of Christ. That's not what Christ is called. Not to shrink and be timid, but to continue to grow and expand. And look at Ephesians 3.20. It's in the same... It's, it's just a couple of chapters over, or one chapter, a few verses really, from what we've been reading these past three, 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 week, uh, three weeks. Paul writes, Now to him who by the power at work is in us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice in Paul's letter that it's abundantly far more than we could ask or imagine. Paul doesn't say that God is going to give us what we imagine or what we ask for far more than what we could ever ask for, which is why I know I need my kitchen friends because I'm going to settle for just good enough if it's just me. And I'll be saying that, I'll be repeating Paul over and over again. I'll start having a lot of eyes in my sentence and I will feel isolated and alone and defeated. It takes some courage to work hard to find the kitchen in your life. But that's what I'm asking you to do. Alan Dutchman said this uh, in Change or Die. He said, people rarely change on behalf of the three F's. Facts, fear, or force. Somebody can throw you all the facts in the world. Somebody can scare you to death. Or they can force you to do something. But that doesn't cause change. He says it's the three R's that enable people to change. Relate, repeat, reframe. And that's what happens in the kitchen. We, just with a small group, you can relate to someone who's going through troubles. You can, we can relate to each other and realize that our troubles are really all the same. Our kitchen friends can help us to repeat maybe new holy habits Maybe new things. Maybe, maybe you haven't been praying or, or some things that you've been losing touch with God. These are the kitchen friends that are going to help you get back on track. Maybe, maybe it's your friends in the kitchen with bread. That's the person that's going to tell you and help you reframe your life and go ahead and put an end to your pity party so that you can start to live again in freedom. This happens in the kitchen. This happens in the kitchen you know, the first question that we ask uh, in discipleship is not, hey, what do people need to know to be a disciple? You know, the very first question we need to ask, who do we need, who do we need to know to be a disciple? Who do we need to know? It's a who question before it's a what question. Or we wind up, spinning our, uh, we, we wind up spinning our wheels and doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. This is what... This is what led people to what uh, John Wesley calls holiness or Christian perfection. It was, it was his amazing um, vision of getting people together. John Wesley was not a systematic theologian. He didn't, he didn't write a whole, whole bunch. He was responding to people, and a lot of them were his opponents. Because, you see, he looked at the Church of England, and he saw no kitchen at all. He saw a beautiful church with lots of cool liturgy, he saw beautiful buildings, but he saw no life in the church. And he saw where the church began to leave out. They started to shrink the porch and not reach out. And uh, he thought, something's got to happen. So he started building 
preaching houses. You can go in Bristol, England, or in London, England, or in other parts of England, and you'll see that John Wesley in the early 1700s began to raise money. These preaching houses, big preaching houses, they weren't there to take the place of church. They were there to get life back in the church. He thought, huh, must be dull preaching. Maybe that's it. So John got all these great preachers, and John preached himself. And then he realized, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to raise some money uh, for these preaching houses to pay the mortgage. He thought of a clever idea. Why don't we start classes, groups of 12, and every time they come each week, everybody brings a penny, and we can pay for these buildings we just built. But what John Wesley realized is that's when his movement started. Not from preaching, but from small groups And far more valuable than what people could bring with their money was this, that people discovered in these small groups that that, that they could have an effect on each other's lives. For the question that they asked every single week in England was, how is it with your soul? So people began watching over each other. It began to look like the kitchen. And then all of a sudden, this Methodist movement just went crazy in England. Thousands and thousands of groups that John Wesley started, all because people began to care for each other and listen to one another in love in the kitchen. That's what had happened. And that's, I think, what our dream is here. Um, Our dream is to continue to midwife and give birth to small groups where where people meet... um, Um, twice a month, three times a month, weekly, at a restaurant or uh, at at a house um, or, um, or at a place of work, wherever it could be, so that we could ask one another, look each other in the eye and say, how is it with your soul? Because we are dying for companions. And sometimes I think we're guilty of trying to make this journey without the bread that's going to get us through We need that bread back. We need God and we need each other. Um, If Jesus couldn't get through his 34 years on this earth, you know, without a kitchen group, I think, why do we think we can do it? Um, And so early this year, we said, hey, let's set a goal. Let's set a goal. We're going to make it a modest goal because we have several kitchen groups already in our church. We decided, let's, let's pray for 12 new kitchen groups, small groups in 2018. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but I think kind of like John Wesley, if we just get it started and rediscover it, it's going to start multiplying. I know it will. Now, where are we in this goal? We're at 10, 10 groups. So we're 10 twelfths of the way there right now. I'm so excited about that. That means we've got four more months to get two more groups. You think we can do that? Now look, if God is tapping on your... I know that not everybody's going to line up. We're going to have 50 groups by the end of this week. I'm not worried about that. What I I want to say right now is that if God is tapping you on the shoulder, those shoulder taps we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you're going, I really do, I'm really kind of looking. And and, and I would like that. I, I need to find companions. I want you to grab Julie, grab me, grab Susan, grab anybody on our staff. And we're just going to do it one kitchen group at a time. And I know we're going to get there. I know we're going to get there. Some of you may say, I've got my kitchen group, Bruce. Thank you. And if so, praise the Lord. Because we all need it. We all, we all need it. How can we grow? 
without people who, uh, without people who know us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. We want our groups to be um, to have accountability, people to feel like there's belonging um, and care. Just this morning, in my micro group, my small group of three, one uh, one person in my group emailed me and said, "I'm thinking about you this morning." about what prayer requests you share with me, and I want you to know, I know it's difficult right now. I'm praying for you. Now, do you, what, what do you think that did to me this morning when I got that note? And it's, I wouldn't have told everybody what I shared with, with the two people I share a group with, but it was, it, it was amazing. Simply put, I know this, that the most vital churches on the planet put great emphasis on small groups. And uh, I want us to keep starting Kitchen Companions. Um, at seminary, um, I learned of a, of a town in France called uh, Sourlignon Les Champons. I, I don't know French very well. Some of you, I probably butchered that. But it's a, it's a small town in, um, in the central France. Uh, a small village. And early in the 20s and 30s, there was a pastor there by the name of Andre Trockmay. Andre was a, 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 a Protestant, a Huguenot, and, and, and there in that village, he, uh, he ran a church. He ran the village church. Now that village uh, and that, those people in that church harbored more Jewish uh, people who were who were running away from the Third Reich and from the Nazi Party, um, they saved about a thousand lives of people who were certain to be sent to death camps in the early 40s. And I remember reading about that in seminary, going, "Wow, were, I mean, were those people braver? I mean, would we do that? Were, were those people braver than us? Did they were, were they were, did they have a better faith than you and I? I mean, what would I do in the face?" of certain um, punishment and maybe even giving my life if, you know, because the, the, the German occupation was coming through. Um, and, and, and what they did was, was they hid all uh, uh, these uh, dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of Jews, they hid in different homes in this village. I don't know how word got out that it was a, it was a, a, a hospice, uh, uh, like, a, like a safe place for, for Jewish folks at the time. And uh, when... When the church heard that the Nazis were coming to look for Jewish people, they sent them out into the woods. And then at the end of uh, when, they, when, when the soldiers were out, when they knew it was safe again, this little group of Protestants would go out into the woods and they would begin singing a hymn which let their Jewish friends know it was safe to come back. About a dozen people from that church after the Nazis had begun to get wind of it by, by the, however they did it, they knew something was up in that village. But the village never relented to that. They always had the courage to stand up to it. They even made a statement uh, that actually uh, about eight or ten of the people in that church actually gave their lives because they were sent to camps to threaten them. I thought about all this and as I was reading about Andre Trockney, one thing stuck out to me. 
in his church, he had designed about 15 years before. He said, we're going to divide up the neighborhoods and I want our members to meet in, and it said in the book, in kitchens. And I want them to pray for each other once a week. And I want us to look out for each other. Now, I don't know if that was what gave them such amazing courage to risk their lives. But I got to think that what they learned in that kitchen sharing bread made them want to extend hospitality to their Jewish friends in the area. And in fact, even gave them the courage to do and to be exactly what Christ called them to do and to be. I really do think the stakes are high. The very credibility of Jesus' life and message in the eyes of a very lonely and isolated world is dependent upon the way we as his followers relate to each other. Truly, truly, all. The very message we send to the world means nothing if we don't know how to relate to one another. But if we do, if we know how to build relationships with each other, if we know where the kitchen is, in the house, then, then maybe we'll have the courage to do what we need to do in the face of any obstacle. So, who are your kitchen companions? Think about that. Who are your kitchen companions? And who would put you on their list as a kitchen companion? And how might you help us cultivate the kind of community that fosters holy friendships. It's so easy to lose track of bread. Let me just say that. It's so easy to go through the motions and forget and drift into a kind of religion that is devoid of holy friendships. Don't let that happen to you. It's so easy to think some program or slogan will save us or save the world. And they're good and programs are good and slogans are good. But you and I know they never will save the world. The good news is this. God is our friend, our closest companion, who said a long time ago, it's not good for anybody to be alone. And God has a companion for you and for me. That's why, that's why we're here present for each other in the flesh, bread for each other and bread for the world. And God has invited us in the kitchen where the bread is fresh and hot and is waiting for us all. And the bread was always meant to be shared. This goal of life, our goal in life, is to find that bread and to find someone to share it with. That is holiness. That is salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the kitchen. Thank you for building this house. Uh, Lord, thank you that you've provided for us everything we need. If only we will access it. If only we will have the courage to walk to the table and take a piece of the bread from heaven. Lord, help us to find our kitchen companions. Help us to know what that means. And God, I pray that if there are those who are looking for a small group, a band, uh, as we start the fall, that, that, that they'll follow through on it and come to me or Susan or Julie 
or someone will help them find it, God. Lord, thank you for being our friend. Thank you for being our companion, sharing bread with us in your kitchen. Amen.